The COVID-19 pandemic is a unique moment in our history. These are the stories from the front lines, featuring visits with the heroes who are making a difference when we need them the most, and ideas on how to stay well and balanced as we learn to live in physical distance. From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, this is The Front Lines of COVID, a surgery set series. I'm your host, Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon trying my best. Welcome. Communicating about health and healthcare is not easy. I spent two years getting a master's degree in health communications, and the key takeaway after all that time was that I still had a lot to learn. So I was really excited last year when I found a course offered by the Alda Center for Communicating Science, which is part of Stony Brook University. In this two-day immersion course, I came together with about a dozen other doctors from around the country, plus one awesome orthopedic surgeon from Canada, and spent hours practicing the hard communications of healthcare jobs, communicating with colleagues, with bosses, with difficult patients, and with the public, listening with empathy when your peers are ranting, distilling complex information into forms that fit the audience. Hard stuff, but it was incredibly fun to do. I have a background in theater, and it was just an absolute delight to dig into some of those old tools and find ways to apply them to my life as a surgeon, And I had the chance to meet one of my childhood idols, Alan Alda himself, whose role as Hawkeye Pierce on the show MASH was my first exposure to surgery, and which sent him down the road of becoming one of the leading health communications experts of our time. I highly recommend his books and his podcast about communication, Clear and Vivid. My teachers for that course were Susmita Patti, a pediatrician and professor at Stony Brook and the program's chief medical program advisor, and Elizabeth Ebeth Boisha an assistant professor of practice at the center. When the pandemic hit, I was struck by two incredible communications challenges that we're facing in healthcare. One, how to communicate effectively to our colleagues and our patients when we're all wearing masks and standing six feet apart from one another. And two, how to translate the experience of working in a hospital that's closed to visitors to all the people on the outside desperate for accurate knowledge about what COVID-19 looks like from our perspective. The logical experts to answer those questions were Shusmita and Elizabeth, so it was a great delight to get them on the line. So Shusmita and Ebeth, it is such a delight to get reconnected with you here in the time of COVID. It was October when I met and spent two wonderful days with you in New York City, and that seems like at least 10 years ago. So I feel like we've been friends for like most of my life at this point, and what a great thing to have you join us here on the podcast to talk about the work you're doing in communication and communicating science and medicine in this time when communicating science and medicine is like as important as it has ever been or may ever be. Thank you so much for having us. It's really fun to reconnect and and talk again, especially at this time. I, I want to talk about two issues in communication that I've seen and, and get your perspective on that as the people who really think about this day in and day out as part of your work with the Alda Center. One is how do we communicate with our colleagues in the hospital in a situation where we're doing many of our interactions by video conference and when we're not, we're trying to stay more than six feet away from each other while wearing masks and face shields? How do we have that interaction? And then I'd like to go on and talk a little bit more about how we how we turn outward and talk about what we're seeing in the hospital to the world at large who, who isn't privy, for better or worse, to what's going on in the COVID ICUs. Let's start with that first issue. How do we talk about, how do we talk to each other in an effective 
effective way when we are not able to use you know, all of our senses and look other people in the eye, uh, see what their facial expressions are telling us behind a mask. Any tips or tricks for, for those of us who find ourselves in that situation now every day? It's amazing just how different communication feels when we do have this changing context for all of that going on, as you were just describing, Jonathan, not being able to read someone's body language in the same way. I mean, who knows what's going on behind that mask? What is, is that a smile, a frown, right? How am I supposed to take that? But I also, with all of those limitations, I think there are some opportunities. I've had to convert all of my teaching and training from face-to-face -to, -face to using technology as we are right now. You know, there are other ways that we can find to not just compensate, but but be able to communicate in different ways. You know, we, we rely maybe a little bit more on writing. I've been noticing a lot of sort of signs going around, certain gestures. It's interesting to watch. There's a campaign around here, um, and I don't know if it's in your area of the country, of displaying rainbows around neighborhoods and in windows and office windows and on doors of offices as a way to communicate solidarity and empathy and perseverance there is something very symbolic about that, right? That there's a storm going on right now, but on the other side of it, there's this rainbow and all those colors blending together. So I think we're, we're discovering this together. Our communication will adapt and change with these different contexts in which we find ourselves. Yeah, and I'll just add on to that. I, I think, you know, this is definitely a learning process for everyone, and this is an opportunity to really put into practice communication skills of, of a different sort, perhaps, that maybe we're not as used to using and, and exercising those muscles in a different way or learning new ways to adapt. I think, you know, certainly in medicine, we are used to communicating in times of stress. We are, you know, practiced in doing codes and resuscitation. And so those are stressful situations and we have a, you know, standardized way that we approach those. And so everyone knows what everyone else is doing. I think one of the challenges we're facing now is, is that things are changing so rapidly and this is uncharted territory on so many different levels in terms of what the correct process, all of those kinds of things that it, it's definitely challenging. I, our strength as medical professionals though, is that we are definitely well-versed in under stressful conditions, keeping our cool, keeping our calm, and working together to unite what, you know, along the mission of, of providing the best care possible. And I think that's what really helps us come together. One of the things about the ALDA method that I really enjoyed was its focus on improvisation, right? On its it's insistence that you step a little bit outside of your comfort zone and and try to put yourself in someone else's shoes or just put yourself into a situation where where the standard roles did not apply. I mean, obviously the best thing would be if everyone traveled and spent two days with uh, with you guys in New York. But as we all try to sort of get our minds around having to have our normal routines upended, you know, what sort of things can people do to sort of make their minds more open to that improvisation um, that is being asked of all of us? That's, that's a really great question. And no, Jonathan, you, 
you were you've trained in improvisation prior to your training with the ALDA medical program. And so you were already in some way a, a convert to this. And I think that maybe that's part of what drew you to take that training. But that, I think that improv mindset that you're describing is really valuable. And I think it'll come easier to folks who have had training, whether it's, you know, in improv classes like you've taken in the past or through training with us using the ALDA method, which is a combination of improvisation and message design strategies. But an improv mindset is something that is accessible to everyone. And if you think about those two core principles that we remind our participants of again and again, number one, say yes and, which is building on that moment, right? Taking in what what you've been given, whether it's what you wanted to have happen or not have happen, or whether you're the person you're communicating with is saying something that's going in a direction that you agree with or not, you can still accept that moment and work to build communication together. And the second principle, which is, I think, you know, to lean back on that idea that Shishminto was mentioning in terms of communicating in, in high stress environment, it's make your partner look good. You're working on a team and how can you put focus on the other? Not just on your patient, of course that's very important, but also on the people that you're relying on and that you have to trust so much when we're working in this kind of health crisis. Yeah, and to add to that, I think I I would say that those active listening skills that again, all of us in healthcare know we strive to apply whenever we're taking care of patients. Now we also want to continue to apply when we're working with each other. And that's the the team building aspect, the the make your partner look good, the yes and with each other as we we move through this crisis. Yeah, I mean, I just, I feel every day blessed that I came up to medicine through the theater because I think it, it teaches you so much about how to work with people and how to how to find your way through difficult environments. And I think that yes, and make your partner look good is like so important every day, but especially now. But I would say, you know, it it certainly has not gotten easier in these times. And one thing that I find myself thinking a lot about is the talk that we did about rants and the Mm -hmm. value of venting and and the way to do that constructively and the way to listen to it constructively. Could you boil down for our listeners what was a, you know, a few hours of training on, on, the, the value of ranting? There's so much in that exercise, right? I, I mean, to build on your, your entry point into this, you know, this idea of venting as something that we can do that might help renew us, right? Being able to process really intense feelings and emotional experiences that we're going through at this time. So, so finding someone that you trust. And if you look, if you think about who you already rant to in your life, it's mostly people you have close trusting relationships with and be able to use them as a sounding board. And that idea of being able to send not, not always to the text, right? To the, to go, to go back to the theater, right? There's what people say and then there's people mean, right? Yeah. And there's a, there's a listening. And, and we, if we really put ourselves into a kind of yes and listening mode, it's, it's what is that underneath? What's really driving this anger? What's driving you know, this despair? Can you help that person name that thing and appreciate 
you know, that that's valid and that that is part of who they are. You know, people don't get upset when things that they don't care about happen. Positive emotions and negative emotions, they're not really opposites. They're, they're more closely related because we, we only have extreme emotions about things that we care deeply about. And I think that's a wonderful place to start. You know, you're, you're upset or you're elated because this thing is something that's important to you. And that can open up other conversations that wouldn't have happened otherwise sometimes. For sure. I, I 100% agree. You know, I think the, the rant exercise is so eye-opening, invigorating, um, transformative, because it, it really does help people, again, exercise that, that active listening muscle to try to understand what does the other person really care about? And that's what's driving their emotion. Yeah, I had uh, a colleague call me not too long ago and just start ranting. And it was great, hopefully for, for that person and definitely for me to like be able to, to sort of enjoy or engage in that process of just a, a two-way venting about the craziness of our current situation. And, and then thinking thoughtfully about, you know, how, do, how does that, how can we find some sort of solution? Also, you know, just, just the act of sort of feeling free with someone to just speak your mind and hope that, you know, the subtext finds its way through. Absolutely. And I think uh, with all the social distancing that's happening, it's so important to connect with others that you trust and that you feel comfortable speaking your mind. Yeah. Maybe we should, we should schedule rant session. <laughs> just like the ranting corner, you know, you go stand 10 feet from someone and just yell at them and they can yell back. And then, right. right? And in desperate times. Called, uh, used to be called happy hour. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so let's, let's turn it around and, and talk about how we talk about what we're seeing in the hospital to the people outside our walls, be that, you know, our friends and family or, or the media, um, all the people who are very interested to know what's happening in hospital these days, but who, we, who can't come in and see it for themselves. And, and that probably is not the audience to whom we should go on unhinged rants. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, how, any recommendations for how we, how we tell the stories of what we're experiencing in a responsible way, but in a way that crafts the, the vital messages, right? I mean, I think if everyone could come into the hospital, and I say this, used to say this about trauma, right? Like if you could see what happens when a bullet hits a person, you'd be less inclined to promote things that encourage bullets to hit people. And now it's like, if you could see what, what it looks like in a COVID ICU, what healthcare people are, are going through and what the patients and the families who can't be there are going through, you would keep your distance. You would make this work, but it's hard to give those visuals. So how do we tell that story? I, I wanna talk a little bit because I think that the, the rant is actually an interesting place to start hmm. with that. In the sense that you connect with somebody that you trust and talk about, okay, what, what is it that I want people to think, feel, and do when I'm talking about my experience as a healthcare professional? So what you rant about, what you talk about with your trusted circle of, of friends and family, probably not exactly what you might want to be talking about with the public. It might be, but it might not be. And I think that's, that's the, the thing to consider. What, you know, who is your audience and, and what do you want the audience to think, feel, and do? And it might be multiple things. It might be one thing. It might be three things. And then that's, that's where I, I would suggest 
we start. That's interesting. Just actually starting with that, the rubric of, of a rant, like what are they thinking? What are they feeling? What are they doing? Can you talk a little bit more about, about what each of those things means in this context, like the thinking, the feeling, and the doing? I think, you know, we, you never know what someone else is thinking, right? We can't read minds. So how do you, how do you communicate in a way that conveys your message clearly, vividly with empathy? And I think that is one of the key pieces. You know, there's that old saying, I'm sure you've heard, and I'm probably going to misquote it, but it's, you know, people won't remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And I think that's the piece to really think about deeply. And it might depend on your audience. So obviously when you're talking to your friend or your family or your coworker, those are all different audiences than if you're speaking to the general public. And if you're speaking to the general public, you know, who is the general public that that's in the room? Is it, you know, a group of parents and families whose children are not in school? Is it, you know, the people who are delivering food and working in grocery stores? You know, it, it, the public is, is, is a lot of different people and people wear a lot of different hats and play a lot of different roles. And so thinking about all of those things, I think is really important before you decide what you're going to say and how you want that to be received. I would love to pick up on a couple of things that you said in in just posing that question and shifting us to talk about this, Jonathan. Mm -hmm. You know, one is what story do I want to tell? And I think there's there's sort of a, a tension that might exist for some folks between just really being in process about things, like kind of having that raw, I'm ranting, I don't know what this means, I have no idea what to do. And then being able to organize that into a narrative form in a way that might, as, as Shashmita is talking about, lean towards being able to reach an audience or not. And I'm also thinking about how you, you know, you had a, an, a goal that, that you put forth is that you wanted to change people's behavior and make sure that they observed the social distancing measures, right? And I know you, you have a background in health communication too, right? Yeah, Am I remembering no, I that right? a master's in health communication, which is basically like, yeah, how do you get people to do stuff using messages, yeah. right? Right. And so I guess as you as you try to reach people who are not social distancing because they don't they don't see this, they haven't maybe they don't know anyone who knows someone who has this virus. And so they feel like that is all hypothetical for them. If you're sending that out through these major channels, through reaching a, a, the public through a media interview or something like that, you're also reaching not only those target uh, audience members who you want to change their behavior, but also perhaps a certain percentage of people who are completely freaked out or are bleaching their mail every day and panic buying out, you know, their stockpiling and preparing for the end of days at the same time. I would love to do a whole training just on that, you know, on looking at the public health communication and what kind of role those people on the front lines can have in helping get that inside perspective, which is so valuable and, and only people who are there can can bring those stories back right we can't we can't make those things up and i think people are listening and they do want to know they're thinking about what that must be like a lot 
I've certainly seen on social media, my social media threads, I'm friends with some folks who are working in healthcare who are choosing to put their stories out there in a really powerful way. And some of them in a, in a really, you know, kind of more gentler way than others. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I think I might have, you know, read a few rants. Right, and things. they are the things that make the the news. The reason for that, I mean, I think this this distinction of what you want people to think versus what you want them to feel, I think a lot of times we don't make that distinction. We believe that if we tell people what to think or we present them, and we do this all the time in medicine, right? We, we present them with a data table from a publication and we say, mm-hmm here is the data, therefore you must think this, therefore you must do this other thing, right? right. But we, we, we neglect the feel, and I feel like that is actually what motivates change, right? It's, you can show people charts all day long, right? And I think we could all, everyone in America right now could draw a flattened curve. But does, how do we change how people feel about it in a way that maintains you know, our professionalism and, and, and our capacity to sort of be a trusted voice um, and not just a sort of ranting person on, on Twitter because the temptation is strong sometimes. <laughs> For sure. And I, I think, you know, one way to think about it is where can you find common ground? Usually that's a good place to start. It's really hard. So, you know, the, the, the you know, sharing data and things like that. That is the way we work in healthcare. So that is our common way of working. We have that common ground. It still doesn't necessarily change the behavior and there's lots of different reasons for that. I do think the the feeling piece is really important and certainly in speaking with the public, finding that common ground. Again, you know, so, you know, the person like Elizabeth was talking about, you know, the person who may or may not have contact with someone who either has been affected by the virus or someone who's working in a, an industry where they're feeling exposed, vulnerable, scared, or someone you know who, who may have had a close family member who has um, succumbed to the virus. So there's, there's lots of places to connect and, and understanding where that person is coming from, listening to where that person is coming from, is a good way to start to find that common ground. Know your audience, understand where they're at before you start throwing figures and charts at them. Yeah, exactly. Right. There's a playwriting rule that I think is really helpful with things like that, which is never tell your audience anything until they want to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I find that that's, that that's the so same sort important. of thing. Get get. <laughs> I would love to you know get me interested enough so that I ask you how or so that I I ask you for those specifics, and then you show me the chart because that would be really helpful at that time, right? If you lead in with that, right, yeah. uh, that can be a little intimidating and and overwhelming because the amount of information. But if I'm curious and I'm invested in that then I, I can go a long way with you in terms of having you share some of those details that you know about as an expert. I think that's just such a, a great point. I, I, we're not going to top that. Um, so <laughs> I, thank you so much, both of you, Ebeth um, and Sushmita. It's such a pleasure to see you guys. Glad you're staying safe out there on the East Coast. Uh, hopefully we're starting to see an, uh, a light at the end of the tunnel here. And I, I just can't tell you how appreciative I am of everything you taught me when I uh, visited the Alda Center. And thank you for, for giving people a glimpse of some of the wisdom that you guys have about how to address these hard situations. 
I guess one more question before we go. How has this pandemic changed the way that that you guys are thinking about talking about uh, these things in the future? Ebeth, you'd mentioned, you know, thinking about public health approaches to uh, to the ELDA method, for instance. Yeah, that I mean, that is one of one of the ideas going forward. I think, you know, just to speak very personally as as a theater artist and an improviser, I've been really resistant to getting on board fully with with online learning. I really thought, you know, there's some things that that uh, you can do there, you know, if it's knowledge-based, but how do you really teach some of these skills of connection? Just as you were saying, because there's this mediated communication, I'm not in the room with you. I'm not sharing time and space. And I think there's something so special and valuable about that. But this has really forced me to continue my evolution, which had begun before this, where I've realized that there are some things that we can do through these different channels. And we're going to evolve and adapt to be able to keep supporting those of you who are working in healthcare to carve out some time to focus on best practices in communication. I'm excited to see what we can what we can come up with and how we can meet the needs of this present moment. Yeah, and I think, you know, similarly, I think it has really invigorated and motivated us to really carefully think about how do we support healthcare team communication? because that is so incredibly critical to success in controlling and getting on the other side of this pandemic. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much. Um, Such a pleasure. And I hope we can all talk about this again soon, uh, maybe in person. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks so much to Sushmita Patti and Elizabeth Boisha for joining us. After we'd stopped recording, Ebeth made a point that I thought was incredibly important, which is that we need to think about the communication tools that we're developing as tools for the long haul. The backside of this pandemic is still going to demand new ways to communicate effectively, if only because telemedicine and video visits are not going away. We'll have links to the Alda Center and some of Alan Alda's communication resources in the show notes. We're all trying so hard to do the right thing in this moment. And our successes, there are many successes, sometimes seem lost in the grief for the old times or the threat of new outbreaks as stay-at-home orders end early, friends and patients lost to the virus, or just leaving our mask in the car and having to go plead our case to the PPE police, getting stir-crazy, venting to friends with rants that come from nowhere, not effectively telling our stories. We're all trying so hard to do our best. Sometimes you have to take a step back and remember that you're part of something bigger. I like this poem for that. It's called Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, 
are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. If you have an experience with COVID-19 you'd like to share or a question you want answered on the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter at J.E. Kohler. That's K-O-H-L-E-R. You can also send us an email at podcast at surgery.wisc.edu. If you want to hear about something other than COVID-19, our regular program is focused on the latest innovations in surgery, including interviews with the pioneers at its cutting edge. If you're new here, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Bonnie Farber, J.P. Swenson, and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was edited by J.P. Swenson. Special thanks to Nicole Jennings, Rebecca Minter, and everyone else in our department pulling together during this adventure. Until next time, be well and stay in touch, friends. Remember, you can't stop the clock. This too shall pass.